Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. We all know that collectors assembled these archives of classical coins and manuscripts and even butterflies and insects. But among their collected objects were seeds. And it struck me that these seeds occupied a different category than something like an ancient coin. They exist still in potentia, that is, they can still become something else. Seeds have been known to be germinated after 1500 years. There's a recent example of a team in California germinating seeds from the sacred lotus plant, and they dated those seeds at 1500 years old. But a seed, when you look at it, is the result of experience, right? Choices that have been made by gardeners and previous cultivators of that species to get to the point where then this seed was saved from a plant. And then that that seed potentially could be germinated into the future. My name is Maria Zitterek. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Calgary, and I specialize in the literature and culture of the 18th century. I had been reading 18th century letters, which recorded um, instances of seed exchange. So people like John Locke, the philosopher, I had been reading their letters in manuscript, which recorded instances of seed exchange, but the seeds that had once been enclosed in those letters and how they enclosed them were now missing from the historical record. I knew seeds were being exchanged, but I couldn't visualize what that looked like. So when somebody sent a letter, it was the letter that was folded, one sheet that was folded up and then a seal of wax was impressed upon it. And so it was within that, that manuscript letter that there would be this interior packet um, that would have to fit, especially during it for the penny post, it would have to fit because you wouldn't want to be charged for a second sheet. That packet would have to be quite tiny indeed to fit in, inside a letter. What makes the seed packet at the Linnaean Society unique is they are still more or less in their original state. So whereas other institutions may have um, archived the seeds that were once in a packet and they've put them in a new set of drawers and maybe thrown out the labels or thrown out the paper packet along the way, the Linnaean Society's packets are more or less in their original condition. One, for example, that I came across was it's an old advertisement for a doctor who administered um, treatments for impotency. Another example I have is um, a sermon. So a sermon that was delivered in the 18th century. That's been made into a seed packet. So it's all those individual examples of how kind of the world of 18th century print and manuscript has been recycled into these seed packets that makes the seed packets at the Linnaean Society such a rich source of inquiry that is so valuable to us and that doesn't exist in many other collections.
so the packets that have ended up at the Linnaean Society, many are associated with James Edward Smith. So people who are sending their seeds to Smith, who is known to have a seed collection, seed packets associated with the banks and cook voyages. So some of the packets will say Botany Bay, banks. And so it seems like that material is associated with these famous voyages. So in part, those packets which have survived already have come from the higher end of the social scale. Well, even by the 18th century, seed sellers had this kind of dodgy reputation, in part because really when seeds began to be sold in the 16th century by peddlers, even by the 18th century, there was, it was proverbial to say that a seed seller um, you know, could be a cheat. One writer described it as, these seed sellers sell us counterfeit seeds, old and dead seeds. And really in the 18th century, that's when the commercial seed trade expanded. So there were dedicated seed businesses in London, but that reputation for selling unviable seeds um, dogged the seed sellers. In the seeds business, reputation was everything. If you got a bad reputation for selling older dead seeds, your business would fail. And it was a pretty precarious business to begin with. So part of what private seed exchange was doing was to sort of mitigate the risk of dealing with these profit-seeking seedsmen and getting seeds through different kinds of networks that attempt to guarantee their viability. So there was a value attached to the seed that might come, you know, to Locke from William Corton, who had gotten it from Pierre Magnold. And so these chains of reciprocity in these social networks, those themselves ascribed a kind of value to these seeds. But one thing that really has struck me about a number of these seed packets are they, you know, they're different varieties of legumes. You know, that's not so exciting from necessarily a taxonomical point of view, and that seems sort of more mundane. But just to cultivate a novel kind of peas or squash, that was just that bit of rarity, something you didn't already have that you would cultivate at home and expand your palate, potentially. What strikes me in many cases is seeds were designated valuable to save, but often when there was no idea of what species it was. So the Linnaean Society has some wonderful examples that I think kind of drive the historians of botany crazy, but these are the examples that I'm quite interested in, is a packet that the only kind of inscription on that packet will be to keep. That's not going to help us with the taxonomical enterprise of the 18th century, but it, what it says is um, this seed came from somebody or was collected at some point and a decision was made to preserve it. Many are ins inscribed with a botanical name. They're inscribed with from Mr. Crow's garden or from the Reverend Yates in Liverpool. So I think what that tells us is that seed exchange wasn't always driven by taxonomical aims, but dovetailed with a kind of sociability. A seed was exchanged between individuals, a desire for a seed that perhaps was not available in these commercial shops, or a seed that had a kind of personal provenance. So a garden that you visited, you might bring home a seed from that. So there's much more in the way of what we would call 
affective meaning with these seeds, sort of there's an emotive, I think, context that hasn't really been explored. Princess Augusta in the 1750s made her stated goal to collect seeds of all the world species of plants. There was already a sense in the 18th century that some species were becoming more and more rare. And rare has a few different meanings. Rare means hard to get hold of, but rare means also not as available anymore or potentially in decline. These initiatives in the 18th century by Hans Sloan, and it seems by Smith as well, and other figures to assemble these encyclopedic collections of seed, that knowledge already of the dangers, right? The dangers to biodiversity. They might not have used those terms in the 18th century, but there was an awareness. It was really in the 2000s that you saw the proliferation of larger scale seed banks. So I'm thinking here of the Millennium Seed Bank at Kew and then the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which was created in 2008. And so these are large scale initiatives to bank the seeds of, of bankable species. So the Millennium Seed Bank has as their target 20% of seeds by 2025. So these targets to safeguard species that are at risk. And so these seed banks have arisen um, as a form of what's called ex situ conservation. So a way of preserving the seeds from species that might be going extinct. What's started to interest me, in addition to those large scale seed banks like the Millennium Seed Bank are what's called um, micro seed banking. In Canada, a number of public libraries, in fact, operate come spring, they operate their own seed libraries. They're low tech, they're old card catalogs with all those little drawers and seeds are placed in all those individual little drawers and anybody can come from the community to borrow a seed and plant it in their garden and the expectation is then once they've grown out those tomatoes, um, they will return a seed to the seed library. What's interesting is this return to a kind of community-based events and community-level structures that allow people to exchange seeds and to kind of cut out, right, cut out the larger businesses and the commercial profiting from a person's desire to have different seeds. And in an ironic way, that's actually getting back to the 16th century when somebody like Thomas Tusser wrote in his 500th points of good husbandry that to exchange seeds with one neighbor was a frugal, was a, a modest, and was just a neighborly activity to do. So seed exchange in those early days was was associated with frugality. In the 18th century, it becomes associated with consumerism. And I think now, here we are at this moment where seed saving and seed exchange at this sort of community level, in fact, is a cry against 
the consumerism of the seed businesses and is a desire to get closer again to your own food source. And so that seed has arrived to you and now you have a kind of stewardship of that seed and a responsibility to cultivate it and then you deposit the results of your decision-making about that seed back into the community.